say this story is about the miraculous power you hold inside of you to heal your own life. That altruistic component of the Power of Eight groups is one of its powers. It is like a bulletproof vest. People who do things for other people are healthier, happier, and live longer in every regard. We need to give. And when we do, it is extraordinarily healing. People entering into that state beyond themselves, it feels like they finally come home. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, welcome back. And I'm interviewing Lynn McTaggart today. She is uh, an American living in the UK. And so in this interview, we get we get into a little bit in the beginning what things are like over there. As I have understood it, they are in a much more progressed state of uh, socialism than we are. And so I think we have to pay attention to what's going on over there. And she'll mention that they're only allowed to leave their house once a day. That's something we mostly haven't seen in the United States that you're allowed out once a day. Um, this is her book that I am interviewing her on. I read it last year and we don't really get into the how of, of group intention, but I really used leverage the work of Lynn McTaggart, which I've been practicing doing focusing intention. It's basically like you take your meditation and you know how, when you're meditating, you keep your, you keep yourself grounded, you breathe, maybe come up with a mantra that's about the healing of someone else. It's not you. You don't do this on yourself. Um, and, and, and Lynn McTaggart talks in this conversation that I have with her about how it's when we focus on others that we heal. And that's not why to do it. That's not why to do it. However, it just happens. And she's documented this over and over again in her work, doing lots of experiments. Um, 29 of her 33 experiments uh, affected outcomes in a positive way. And most of them in statistically significant positive ways. So just know that if you want to give this a try, if you want to do it in small groups, all that's in the book, but Again, come up with some with a mantra for your meditation that is about focusing on the healing of a nation, uh, the healing of a person you know who is struggling. Um, and just employ all your techniques of, of um, meditating and then just do this on a regular basis. This is a great way to be other-focused. And when we're other-focused, we're going to talk about this in the conversation, we are far more healthy and we are far more happy. And I'm sure that you've noticed this during the crisis the past few months. So I'm really excited to introduce you to someone I've been wanting to meet for a long time, who is the author of The Intention Experiment, as well as this book, The Power of Eight, which makes this work very, very accessible in a time when we all need to come together more. We need to heal these divisions. And so I'm really excited to introduce you to Lynn McTaggart. So welcome to the show, Lynn McTaggart. Hi, it's nice to be with you, Robin. Well, I've been excited to meet you. It's been it's been a trick to get us to sync up our schedules since you're at least eight hours ahead. But you're an American. You're living in the UK because you're married to a Brit, I believe. That's and it. You've you've written a whole bunch of books, maybe more than me. I'm I'm on I'm 16 now. But the power of eight. I actually, I interestingly, even though I'm I'm an American, I actually picked this book up in Europe last year. 
is when I read it. So before we get started talking about your body of work and how we can use intention in the, in these very difficult times, um, which is really what I wanted to talk to you about since you live in the UK and that's where this guy who came out with this, you know, projection that 2.2 million Americans were going to, we're going to die. And he's turned out to be completely wrong. And people who've dug into his coding have found it to be archaic and sloppy and, and he, he sort of is Neil Ferguson, Professor Neil Ferguson, and I think uh, Lord, London Royal College or something, um, which turned... Imperial College London. Imperial, Imperial College, College London. London. Thank you. I'm like, there's, there's a word wrong there. Um, <laughs> turns out he was completely wrong. But, but yeah. you know, we Americans have been told that you guys have, uh, you know, a worse virus issue, but also, but you were just telling me the virus, not so bad, political situation, not so great. Tell us how it is going on over there. Well, first of all, um, Professor uh, Ferguson, who is now officially called Professor Pants Down, um, he was Professor Lockdown. Now he's Pants Down because he broke his own rules yeah. about lockdown by seeing his married lover on the side. So uh, he's kind of lost a lot of credibility. Um, and primarily because, as you say, his modeling has been considered, it's, been, it's being discredited now. Um, we were supposed to have a half a million deaths. So of course the government freaked out and created emergency hospitals. You know, we turned exhibition centers into Nightingale hospitals with a capacity for 4,000 beds. Um, everything was locked down. We were allowed to go out once a day for exercise or to go to work if we have to, if we cannot stay at work at home and for food. And that was it. Um, and London was the worst hit of anywhere but um, in the UK, but uh, the deaths were never anywhere close to a half a million. They have been about 30,000, a bit more than 30,000, um, largely in hospitals and, and nursing homes because of a lot of you know, not having enough protective equipment and just recycling sick people into those enclosed areas. But London being the worst hit is now one of the best in terms of we're down to about 10 cases a day or fewer. So they've started easing lockdown here. Um, you can, people can travel on the, on the uh, trains uh, if they have to, if they can't work from home, they can go to work um, and people are now starting to go to work. Um, they're starting to put more trains on. They're going to be opening schools in a few, for certain grade levels uh, in a few weeks. And we're hoping to have things like bars, restaurants uh, open by the beginning of July, if not late, late June. The idea was easing us all back in. Biggest problem is people have really liked the lockdown and they've also been scared to death. So they're scared to go back out into it. Um, so I think more of what's going to be the problem is more the very successful PR effort that our government had in telling people to stay home. Now they have to start reversing that and get the fear factor out of people's minds. Well, I'm glad to hear that there's at least uh, talk of opening up the restaurants and bars because those are some of our most vulnerable people who work for those institutions, not just because we actually like to frequent, like to meet and gather in those places, mm -hmm. but I'm glad to hear that, that London's uh, infection rate is so 10, 10 new ones a day. And you said it's nice and sunny there. And you think that getting outside in the sunshine might have something to do with it? 
Well, I mean, there's an enormous amount of evidence and this is kind of, I just wrote a blog saying D is for duh, because uh, vitamin D, they're now finding that the places that were hardest hit have the lowest levels of vitamin D and the people who have suffered the most have the lowest levels of vitamin D. Now this should have been knowledge. We, we've known for years that vitamin D is not just a, uh, something that we need to build bones, but that it's kind of a central uh, coordinator. It's a hormone, not a vitamin, and it's involved in helping to produce insulin. It's involved in the production of insulin. It's, it's involved in the production of cytokines and preventing cytokine storms. And if you connect the dots, you realize that, you know, a huge preponderance of people with, uh, who got very serious uh, COVID-19 or died had diabetes, insulin problems. Um, or were overweight, insulin problems, and also, you know, other issues with overweight, where vitamin D, people are low in vitamin D if they're, if they're overweight, because the fat tissues kind of hold on to that fat-soluble vitamin. And then the final issue is, um, is the cytokine storm. Vitamin D, ample levels of it, prevent that. So, I don't know, maybe, I know viruses, they know viruses can't live in, in warm weather. They live less likely in warm weather. And, you know, it's been sunny here for, since before Easter. So, and unseasonably warm. Is that part of it? I don't know. Or maybe it's just burnt itself out. Yeah, long before COVID-19, you know, hundreds and hundreds of published papers showing that vitamin D is more linked to the strength of our immune system than any other substance. I mean. I think even 20 years ago, a lot of people, 30, 40 years ago, people are aware that taking vitamin C might be useful. I think it's newer for people to be aware that I, I saw some data about that 98% um, of a certain group of deaths were examined for COVID-19. 98% of them were extremely low in the lowest category for vitamin D. And those who sailed through it had a very high, strong correlation to high vitamin D levels. So absolutely. I mean, and even the Scandinavian countries who don't get much light, um, they know they don't. So the population knows to take cod liver oil supplements and it's in fortified, you know, it's, it's fortified in foods. Um, they just know they need more vitamin D. So whereas other countries in more Southern Europe places like Italy and Spain, the older people cover themselves up. They don't want to be in the sun. And so they are naturally low in vitamin D and loads of other things. But as you say, you've probably talked about this a lot. And it's, it infuriates me because it's, you know, the scientists really should know better. We've never heard a single word, not Dr. Bur no. Burks, Dr. Fauci, not a single word about no. You know, you take zinc, vitamin D, and vitamin C, and, you know, and I could get banned from Facebook for saying that. I could get banned on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, you could. We've already been told, our the side of my work, um, our magazine, What Doctors Don't Tell You, and we have an exhibition company called Get Well, and we just posted something on Facebook about vitamin C, and it got labeled fake news. So, yeah, it is, there is a concerted effort not to get that kind of information out, but they, you know... The scientists are coming, people who are doing studies like in Trinity College and Northwestern are coming out with the, the data that is showing this connection with vitamin D with COVID-19. So people have to start listening to it. Well, let's let's talk about intention, which is what has um, made you rather famous. I was fascinated by this and I put this into play while I was in 
So I got this while I was in Switzerland where I, until it was just canceled for this year and maybe, maybe permanently if we have to get vaccines to get on an airplane again. But for eight years in a row, I've done liver detox retreats, like weeks and weeks of them sold out. We had 12 weeks of liver detox retreats led by me and my colleagues um, this summer and fall that got canceled, but they had a copy of this book and I got it. And we actually put this into play. I said, let's do this, you guys. So I had like 16 people who were there and we sat in a circle and I didn't, I hadn't finished the book and I didn't know exactly how you would do it, but we, we, you know, connected to each other. My last book was called Vibe, which is all about, you know, that there's a vibrational frequency to everything, every feeling, every, every person, and we can change it and we can live in higher frequencies. And so, so kind of combined your work and my work. And, and we focused on a lady who was, who was a long-term patient there who had a, a, a chronic neurodegenerative disease. And I said, I said, you know, let's just practice with this. So to, you're, you're a former journalist, I believe, and you're a skeptic. You're a skeptic. You didn't start out really woo-woo talking about that if we sit in groups and focus our intention to heal someone, one of us or someone else, even a person who's very far away, that that can have a powerful effect on outcomes. You didn't necessarily believe that, right? Tell us about your journey there. No, Rob and I didn't believe it at all. Well, I started out um, trying to figure out why things like homeopathy and spiritual healing work. I was fascinated because there were some very good studies showing that spiritual healing works. So I kept thinking to myself, well, you can have a thought and send it to someone else and that person can get better. Well, that completely undermines everything we think about how the world works. And so I wanted to find that out and I thought I'll talk to some frontier scientists and they'll tell me how this works. And that book, that, that exploration, uh, actually led me into a real thicket of incredible new science, um, which was essentially mapping out a completely new view of the world. And that book became my book, The Field. So I got interested in that. And in some of the information that some of these scientists demonstrated in their experiments, which is that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. And this was the early 2000s when there were lots of talk about manifestation and the secret. And the big skeptical investigative reporter in me was basically saying, okay, yeah, so how far can we take this? You know, are we talking about just moving a quantum particle with our thoughts? Or are we talking about curing cancer? You know, and also um, how, what happens when we do this in groups? Does it magnify the effect? So I decided to set up essentially an experiment to test this. I wasn't really sure it was going to work. I wrote a book called The Intention Experiment. And that was not only about the science of intention, but an in invitation to readers to take part in what basically became the largest global laboratory in the world. So I enlisted different scientists working in consciousness research who would set up a specific study and I would then invite my readers from all over the world to take part in these periodic experiments. And again, Robin, I didn't think this was gonna work. Um, I thought, oh, maybe we'll have a little tiny shift. Then we tried everything from trying to make seeds to grow faster, to purifying water, to lowering violence in war-torn areas, even healing one, someone of PTSD. To date, we've run 33 experiments since 2007. And of those 33, 
29 have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. I mean, there's no pharmaceutical drug out there with that consistent track record. So that also left me with a lot of curiosity. Okay, what if I scale this down in a workshop? But I didn't really know how to do that. And I was kicking this around with my husband one day. Um, and I said, well, maybe I'll put them in groups of eight or so and have them send healing intention to a member of the group. And he said, he's a great headline writer. He's also a journalist. He said, yeah, I love it. The power of eight. And so that's how it started. We did it in a Chicago workshop in 2008, put people in groups, didn't expect it to feel anything more like getting your back rubbed, you know, a mild feel good effect. But the next day after we had these people send intention to people with a health challenge, they came back and they didn't talk about a feel good effect. They said things like this, I have cataracts and I'm 80% better, or I have terrible arthritis in my knee and I'm walking normally today, or I have terrible depression and it's lifted, or you know, I have IBS and I feel normal today, my stomach feels normal, and on and on and on it went. Migraines cleared, back pain cleared, and I was shocked, but again, thought this was a placebo effect until I did it again and again and again. And I started realizing after many, many examples of this that maybe this was something and I, something I needed to explore. And so have you done any experiments on to see if the effects are enduring? Well, enduring, I keep, I keep records of some of the people that, that we, I study. I mean, I run a year-long course and I actually keep records of what's happening to them. Um, we know from those records and onward that it is enduring, but we've also studied what is going on in the brains of people involved in these power of eight groups. And we thought it was going to look, I worked with a team of neuroscientists from Life University, which is the largest chiropractic university in the world and one of the most prestigious. And they put their neuroscience department at my disposal. So we set up groups of, we had seven different uh, groups we were studying one by one of student volunteers who came together to do power bait groups. And they were complete novices. Uh, they hadn't even meditated before. Uh, so we expected to see that the power of eight would have a brainwave signature because we were measuring EEGs, you know, electro, electrical um, impulses in the brain. We thought it was going to look just like meditation. It looked at nothing like meditation. Um, the brainwave signatures that ended up occurring looked almost identical to the brainwave signatures of Sufi masters in University of Pennsylvania, studied by University of Pennsylvania's um, then scientist, Andrew Wakefield, uh, Andrew uh, Newberg. And also- um, I caught you talking about one of our favorite uh, vaccine educators. <laughs> Andy Wakefield, I know. He's a, you know, he is a, a really good guy who is fighting uh, against a, you know, a very biased establishment. Yeah, we know of his work too. Um, anyway, so yeah, Andrew Newberg. So his work demonstrated brainwave signatures that were almost identical to what we were seeing, but they were of Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer or Sufi masters during chanting. So what this demonstrated 
was that our people, and these were total novices, never did this before, were entering into a state of ecstatic oneness, almost like a mystical experience. And that's certainly what my people report over, over, over and over and over again. What does the ecstatic oneness look like? Like in terms of like alpha, delta, gamma rays of the brain? Not that? that. There is a turning off of certain parts of the brain. Um, there is so not a preponderance of gamma um, uh, brain waves, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lowering of almost uh, numerous parts of the brain and numerous brain waves. And most significantly, the, brain, um, the parts of the brain that involve us in separateness, that includes the parietal lobes. They sit about here and they tell us, they help us navigate through space and they tell us what is me and what's not me. They were turned way down as were the parts of the frontal lobes involved with worry, doubt, negativity. They were also dialed way down, as were other things that, again, make us feel separate. So our sense of separateness and individuality was basically, had basically been dialed way down. So these were people who felt not just connected, but one with the universe, with all of life. And that, I think, is the power of this, as well as the other part of it that's really important is that people have to get off of themselves. When you're intending in a group, maybe sometimes they intend for you, but most of the time you're intending for someone else. And when people have been stuck repeatedly with intention, I will usually say to them, get off of yourself. Start intending for someone else and watch what happens. And I think that altruistic component of the power of eight groups is one of its powers you have a you have a quote here in the end of your prologue you say this story is about the miraculous power you hold inside of you to heal your own life which gets unleashed ironically the moment you stop thinking about yourself say more about that like how do how how scientifically how when you stop thinking about yourself do you actually heal yourself okay well number one if you look at the science of altruism, it is like a bulletproof vest. I mean, people who do things for other people are healthier, happier, and live longer in every regard. If you look at studies of uh, people who have the same illness, if they help someone else, they are more likely to get better. People who are volunteers live longer, happier, healthier lives. Any kind of volunteerism. Um, People just lending any kind of helping hand, they're like 43% more likely to have better health. It's extraordinary. And you look at this over and over again. One of my favorite studies was done by a psychologist who also happened to be a priest. And he wanted to see whether prayer worked for people with mental illness, with depression. Um, there is certainly a, a body of evidence showing prayer that can heal people physically. So he took 400 patients with depression, divided them into two groups. One group was supposed to receive the prayer. The other group was supposed to send the prayer. So and afterward, he measured on all kinds of psychological parameters what had happened. And he found that the people who had received the prayer, they did better. They did well. They were getting better. But not anywhere near as, as well as the people who had given the prayer. Their improvement was off the charts. 
And we see this over and over and over again, that kind of need for service is really deeply embedded inside us. We need to give, we need to give. And when we do, it is extraordinarily healing. It is, we realize that we are of service and being of service is a huge factor. Another really interesting study I love, <clears throat> decided to look at immune system markers of two kinds of people. One were people who were really well off, living what we'd call you know, the good life. They had loads of money, they had loads of holidays, they were just really enjoying themselves. And they looked at their immune system markers and they were terrible. These people were absolute candidates for a heart attack and other degenerative diseases. They were gonna be dropping like flies. The other group they looked at were people who didn't have as, as much of all of that, but they were living a life of service. And they had extraordinarily robust immune systems. These people were gonna live forever. And that is just one more demonstration of the power of service. So I think there's these two bits that are key. There's an X factor here with the power of eight. You know, it's partly immune, uh, it's partly the power of intention, it's partly uh, the group effect, a kind of effervescence, as it's been called, of groups where everybody is G'd up. It's the power of altruism, and it's the power of oneness. Um, the oneness state very much, and this is what my participants in both the intention experiments and the power of eight report all the time. They report uh, experiences that have been recorded by people like the late psychologist Abraham Maslow. You know, not only did the hierarchy of needs, but he also studied peak experiences. And he said that there were several characteristics and one is a big physical effect and my people report energy shifts even when they're meeting virtually even when they're sitting in front of their computer screen individually participating in an intention experiment uh, you know they talk about energy going up and down their arms or feeling tingling or sobbing uncontrollably that kind of feeling they feel an overwhelming sense of oneness um, they feel, they get a certain kind of epiphany, you know, a blinding epiphany of meaning. Life makes sense to them suddenly. And oftentimes they report a desire for, you know, a sense of rejuvenation. They've been born again to a new life. And I hear this, I've heard this thousands and thousands of times with my power bait groups in the intention experiment. People entering into that state beyond themselves it feels like they finally come home. I like that. And I think you said something really important. You were talking about that, you know, one of the things that happens that might be so magical about group intention is that as this separateness or this self sort of melts away and, and the, the brain wave activity decreases that is focused on worry and fear, that then we're able to become more cognizant of our, of our oneness. And I think that that has everything to do with this situation that we're in right now. That is the focus right now uh, on my, of my show, because we are all one. That's the thing that we, we, we fail to remember is that we actually share electrons. 
with people not at all close to us. And I know your early work was in, you know, prior to becoming very well known for your intention experiments, but uh, like me, you're fascinated by energies, energy exchange, the energies that we, we share, you know, and I always just like to use that as, as one example that people can understand really quickly is that we're actually sharing electrons with people who are not even in the room with us. Um, you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, the book that got me into this that I mentioned in the beginning of the show is a book called The Field. And it was an attempt, as I say, to understand why something like spiritual healing can work. And what I discovered was, you know, a group of frontier scientists who had each discovered a tiny portion of what compounded into a completely new science, a new view of the world. And one of those areas that some had discovered and talked about was an overlooked part of quantum physics called the zero point field. And what goes on there, and as I say, this has been well known in quantum physics for over a hundred years, is that as you say, electrons share energy all the time. They are constantly trading energy like an endless game of tennis. And in that endless game, a little virtual particle gets created. And that's only there for less than the blink of an eye. And it's not very much energy when you talk about one exchange. But if you look at all the tennis games going on by all subatomic particles and all the things in all the universe, you come up with this extraordinary, unfathomable amount of energy in like some sort of supercharged backdrop. And that is called the zero point field because that kind of energy dance is going on, never goes, never stops, never comes completely to rest, even in uh, temperatures approaching absolute zero. So what they've realized is there are two big implications of this. Number one, um, when we talk about subatomic particles, they're also waves and waves carry on to infinity. Also, when waves bump into each other, they take on each other's information and they have a near capa infinite capacity to store information. And so this gives us a essentially a medium for how we could be connected to each other and also how we could access information beyond our senses. And we know we do, we know we affect um, we know, and there's very good evidence for ESP, there's very good evidence for precognition, you know, forecasting, there's very good evidence for intention, and all of those things that are supposedly superhuman capacities. Um, but we could never understand because we were operating under an old scientific story, you know, a Newtonian story of separate things operating uh, according to fixed laws in time and space, you know, very well-behaved separate things. But we now know it's a lot messier. We're now all interconnected, you know, to the furthest reaches of the of the cosmos. Love it. Talk to me a little bit about your uh, mirror effect. So one of the things that I discovered, Robin, that was really amazing to me was when we were doing intention experiments, for instance, when we started on the peace intention experiments, I've done seven of them, and they've every single one, we've had extraordinary effects. The first one was uh, sending intention to lower violence in Sri Lanka, which was going through a, a, a civil war at the time, and uh, the rebels had taken over a whole 
section of the country. And we chose that mainly because I wanted this to be a scientific study. I wanted a team of scientists to study what, how, what had happened before and what had happened after our experiment. And to do that, you need data. You need lots of data, years of data of you know, how many deaths and injuries there are on a weekly or monthly basis. And most countries that are going through a war do not want to count the bodies. They don't want to release any of that information. But Sri Lanka had a very good record keeping and, uh, system and I got hold of that and I was able to use it. And so we did it and it was an extraordinary six days we sent intention and uh, a huge thing happened there. Um, Violence went up during our six six uh, days. I got a little frightened by this, saying, you know, did we do this? But after that, it plummeted to levels that were far lower than before. And more importantly, during that very week of our intention, the government won the most decisive battles it had had in that 25-year war, which enabled it within a few months to recapture the North and when a few months after that, to finish that war. It ended in a bloody finish, but it, it finished. Did we do this? Short answer, who knows? You know, there are many variables, but we've run them, we've run these kinds of studies six more times and every single time there's been an extraordinary lowering of violence. But here's the most interesting part of it. I always survey people after my intention experiments, and this was just, how was that for you, et cetera. And I started getting these extraordinary comments. My life has been amazing after the peace experiment. I'm getting along better with my not so nice boss, or I've made up with my estranged partner, or my son who hasn't spoken to me for 10 years has suddenly popped up in my life again. Um, I want to work for the Peace Corps. Um, I've quit my job. I want to do something more meaningful. Um, but most importantly, and the biggest effect was about half of everybody surveyed, and there were thousands, there were about 15,000 doing that experiment. Half basically said, I am more in love with anyone I come in contact with. You know, they, basically people were hugging strangers, essentially. And so I was completely astonished by this. But the more I started looking at it, the more I started realizing there is this kind of mirror effect that goes on in a group intention experience. And it happens in the power of eight groups too, particularly when people get off of themselves. It's remarkable. I'll give you a wonderful example with uh, Andy. Andy was part of a year long masterclass of mine. And she was recently, she was going through a divorce. She had two young children and she needed a new job. She needed uh, something in marketing or coaching. And she was very experienced, very good young woman, you know, in her 30s or early 40s and, you know, had lots to offer. She couldn't get a job. Every intention her whole group was doing for her just did not work. Nothing was happening. She was stalled. So finally, I just said, Andy, get off of yourself. Start intending for someone else. And the someone else I had in mind was a young boy called Luke, who, um, had broken up with his first serious girlfriend. He was 15. And in a fit of adolescent angst, he threw himself off a 40 foot structure onto hard ground. Now Luke broke every bone in his body. You know, he, he had brain damage, he had nerve damage. The doctors didn't think he was gonna live. So his stepfather wrote me and asked if 
you know, my community could do an intention for him because we do that. We have an intention of the week and we have three people with health challenges every week. My entire community sends intention to. So we st I asked my master class to just focus on Luke in successive Sundays while his stepfather kept a running commentary of exactly what happened to Luke during those times we set intention. And it was pretty remarkable. He seemed to have a big change whenever we did this intention, something enormous shifted or healed. And up, upshot was Luke defied his doctors and got out of the hospital in weeks and is now a healthy 18 year old boy. But you know, did we do this? Maybe it was good doctoring. But the biggest and most interesting point of the story is what happened to Andy. Because Andy, that very next week that she started focusing on Luke, out of the blue, she gets a call from someone she doesn't even know offering her her dream job. And this happened more and more and more. And as I say, I monitor people when I'm working with them. I find out what's going on with them and study them. And this happens over and over again with people who are focused on themselves. When they get off of themselves and start focusing on something, someone else and something else bigger than them, there is a mirror effect that occurs and can be remarkable. So it's also how you talk about the reciprocal effect as you focus on others. It comes back and blesses you as well. Yes, but it has to be heartfelt. I mean, the people where it's actually worked, it's not I give to get, it's I give to give. And when people can get into that, I mean, that is the real key. This is beyond empathy. This is, we're not talking, when we talk about oneness, it's not feeling sorry for someone or feeling their pain or whatever. It is truly entering into a space of such connection that you you are them. And that I think is what really happens with the power of eight. Yeah, I, I haven't been very happy the last three months and, I, and I'm sure that I'm, you know, I'm generally a happy person most or all of every day. But during this whole thing, if I'm being honest, I have, if I am not doing something that is useful um, for others, I'm not very happy. And I have commented to my partner, John, multiple times, the times that I'm happy during the day is because we've set aside a lot of our work and we're having this big group fast right now. 5,000 people signed up for it. I wish a lot more people signed up for it. Um, we're going to do it again, even, even though it was smaller numbers than I thought. I think as this thing progresses, we're not out of the woods on this this thing where all the governments of the world have told separated people into camps of of essential and non-essential now that's a thing that's a thing now like we have a long fight to regain our freedoms in your your country and in mine which mine is actually yours also but you you live in the UK and i and i think that um i, I you know i want to make a, i want to make a a quick point that you know and if you've been following me closely, you'll you'll know that I've mentioned this once or twice. I wrote a letter. I mean, I think all my elected officials here in Utah, in the United States where I live, I think they all know my name because I've written all of them so many times. And when I wrote the, the uh, county mayor of Salt Lake, her name is Jenny Wilson, and I don't even live in Salt Lake. I live in Park City. But in addition to writing my own county officials who shut our county down and have, are going to make a ghost town of our beautiful, historic tourist town here, I also wrote other officials who I felt were doing 
making equally big mistakes. And I wrote Mayor Jenny Wilson a letter and she and I got back a form letter and she said, I'm going to add a month to the lockdown and I'm going to save lives. And I wrote her back and I said, then I will hold you legally accountable for that because our numbers don't justify it. We don't even we had we had at the time we had half a dozen we had half a dozen deaths in the entire Salt Lake County, which is a couple million people. And, uh, and of course they were, you know, they were people in, in, um, hospice in hospitals. They, they were all over the age of seven years old. And that doesn't mean that their lives don't matter. It just means this doesn't justify, you know, exiling, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to long-term unemployment and loss of their businesses. And I wrote her back and said, if you are going to extend by a month, I'm going to hold you legally accountable. I'm already organizing a class action lawsuit. And we're doing that in Utah. Our class action lawsuit is off and running and we have two attorneys working on it. And uh, we're, we have a huge, huge uh, spreadsheet of the businesses who are applying. I wrote her back and said that. And I would like to point out that she did not extend the lockdown. She did not extend the lockdown. And so I just want to say, because, you know, my reaction when The Secret came out like 20 years ago, I watched it and I was like, I hope that people don't from this important and true a truism that our intention can change outcomes. I, you know, and a lot of people in my private group, I have this private group of 17,000 that's growing by a thousand every other day on Facebook. It's called take action for freedom. You know, I, I have people who are just like, well, nobody can save us, but Jesus, I'm just going to pray. Praying is wonderful. Intention is powerful. And I want to, you know, I want to get back to that, but I want to point out to everyone if you look at what Lynn McTaggart is doing, she is also taking a lot of action. <laughs> and, and you know, you're, you're holding the workshops and whatever. This idea that we can just rely entirely on focused intention, that's part, would you, would you agree that it's part, yeah. part of the solution? It's part of the solution. I mean, I think you can't just sit back and say, yeah, I'm going to think this. You, there are many aspects of this that require a kind of a, you know, coordinated effort on your part to not only think the thoughts that you need to think that are going to help you achieve your goal, but also act the things and, and follow through on the things that are going to help you achieve your goals. And I think the third part is, and help other people achieve their goals. So that seems to be the new piece. And as you were saying before about yourself, you feel better when you're in service and everybody feels better when they're in service. I mean, I did a book called The Bond, the one before The Power of Eight, which was all about how we were never meant to be competitive. We were meant to essentially, we were always meant to connect, that Darwin essentially was wrong. And that, you know, some many of our problems are stem from the fact that we're just not living according to our true nature. We've, we've bought into the wrong story. And so that whole feeling of being of service, I think is going to be a really interesting outcome of this COVID-19 thing. As we are uncomfortably placed into a different kind of uh, life, when we come out of it, it's really up to us. I mean, Irvin Laszlo, uh, the futurist said, you know, the, the opportunities that have been opened because of this pandemic. You know, I always had to laugh around 2012 and, you know, 2010, when people said, oh yeah, we're automatically evolving to something new and amazing. Well, I didn't see any evidence of that. I saw a financial crisis 
um, I saw the banks get bailed out and I saw everybody go back to sleep and the same old, same old carry on, the same old I win, you lose, carry on. And now we have an opportunity, you know, we've seen, and one of the great things coming out of this is a different value system, you know, that is starting to emerge in lots of ways of people saying, well, they're having to help each other. We're having to help each other. And we're starting to applaud the people who are the big helpers and getting, I know in my country, every Thursday night at eight o'clock, everybody gets out there and bangs their pots and pans and claps for the frontline doctors and nurses on the national help, for the, the people who are supplying the grocery stores, you know, all of the people who are the lowest paid, who have become our biggest heroes. And I think this is going to, something is going to stick here for us to start thinking, you know, we have to do things a little bit differently. So I'm hoping that's my feeling that the positive element out of this is going to have to rewire things to create a new world. We have to act consciously and it's not gonna happen just by our hoping. We have to act consciously. And you talked about how in your experiments, what you found that people said over and over again was, um, was that they, they love other people and they, they feel that. And I, I don't think there's ever been a time in my 53 years that we've needed that more desperately. As I see it, people have sort of taken up camps and I don't think they're taking up camps because it's like a sports team and I got to play for this side or this side. It is, it is bone deep that they believe in this You've got the people who have been completely hijacked by this idea of a virus and they mm -hmm. truly believe that the people like me, I'll just, I'll just put myself in one of those camps because I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't in one of these two camps, that people like me who are saying, Hey, let's get back to work. Hey, let's take reasonable containment strategies rather than shutting down all the small businesses in America. Let's we're destroying the middle class. We're, we're, you know, we're making the rich richer and making the poor poor and we're wiping out the middle class. This is not going to serve us well. These folks think that people like me are jeopardizing lives. They truly believe that that people like me are killing other people. Now, the people on my side of the fence feel like if these people don't don't pull their heads out and realize that the virus is not our problem here and we're going to destroy our economy over it, we're going to have untold misery including loss of life. And so I've never seen divisiveness like this. I've never been part of it. I've been able to stand apart from partisanship. I've never really been like super attached to Republican or Democrat. I've never really identified as super conservative versus super liberal or any of that. My entire life, I have not felt the divide. And right now we're feeling it so keenly. So I think your message is even more timely than when you published it. Because we have to get back in love. We have to see our connection to other people. We have to see that these are people who are hurting. They don't understand. They may, you know, I may, I may believe that they don't understand. Like in Utah here, we still have five counties shut down. We have had less than 80 deaths and they've all been elderly. The, mm -hmm. Like people in hospice who are already in the hospital, who already have an underlying condition that was going to kill them. And fairly soon we have only 80 deaths. And yet, and we're a conservative Republican led state. And, uh, we, we have, we have got to come together. We have got to remember our humanity. We've got to remember that we're sharing electrons, however you want to put it. Um, so I, I, that's what I've been, we've been chasing you, Lynn, and you must be very popular because it was very, very hard 
to getting your schedule, but can you bring it down to a level of a little bit personal? Like what, what have you done in your family? I know you have children. Um, mm-hmm. She has to go now. Yeah. I, I see that you have to go now. Final question. Yeah. What, how, how has intention blessed your life, your own personal family? And then just okay. where, where can people find you? Okay. Several things. Number one is it's taught me that um, we do need to get off of ourselves. It's also taught me that group intention is a way for polarized people to come together. I mean, even in an intention experiment I did for Jerusalem, I had Arabs and Jews doing this together and it was extraordinary. Yes, we seem to have lowered violence, but that wasn't even the point. The Arabs started saying to the Jews, we love you. And the Jews kept saying to the Arabs things like, your God is my God. So, you know, there's a power in, let's just call it secular prayer, of us coming together that transcends these kinds of differences. And I've seen that not only in the big picture work I do, but also in my own life. And I've realized, and I've talked with my daughters about about it, is, you know, believe. Just believe and just just watch what you're thinking. Uh, that's another thing that I do and try to impart with the, the classes I, I have is, you know, you're creating your world all the time. And if you don't like it, what's going on without you, that's been your creation. So start looking at what you're creating and start creating something new. And that's really my message for everybody on a personal level, but also on a bigger level. If you don't like what's out there now, well, now's your time to step up to the plate and create something new. Um, LynnMcTaggart.com is my website. You can find out about my master classes, workshops, podcasts, new channel, and everything else I do. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for your amazing work. It's going to bless the world in more ways than you can even imagine, I think. Thank you so much, Robin, and best of luck.